I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. There was a similar, this is a historical movie from last year, co-produced in Sweden about, or no, it was it was Norway, Norwegian death metal bands. I just did, saw that the did other you? day. Yeah, Lords of Chaos. Lords of Chaos. They did it yes. based extremely loosely on the book. Yeah, extremely loosely. Very so Colkin's playing one of the, the lesser Colkin. Rory, yeah. Yeah, is playing. How many Colkins are there? Are, there are a few. <laughs> is it there's more Colkins or Baldwins? Probably Baldwins. More Baldwins, I think. <laughs> but it's about like this kind of they they're basically the or, or origin story of Norwegian death metal as a thing, and it's kind of about the life and then a short untimely death of uh, the person who started the record label and the movement. Um, but it's largely about sociopaths. I think it's mo- it's mostly about sociopathy as a as a function in society. It's and Satan it's either... stand by me. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> no. it just being pals. It's I mean, a road they, buddy I, movie. It is a buddy movie, and you know, it is. It really is less about Satan and more. It is just about uh, like nihilism. I think. Yeah. Be, uh, like the youth tapped into nihilism, and that way, it's sort of like a, a more flavorful Fight Club because it basically is follows the same plot of fight club essentially oh okay so without a without a, an imaginary person oh okay well satan also there was a desperate <laughs> desperate attempt to just randomly throw some woman in there so that it wasn't as homoerotic as it was oh and that kind of killed me a little bit because it was no. it was kind of hilarious it was sky sky something was the actress and they're like no seriously these dudes are still super hetero and i'm like <laughs> i don't know you keep having these like waking dreams about dead and that's a little strange i, I, I thought the, the i thought that really the, the piece of it that's the most fascinating is at the beginning because the first iteration of the band mayhem that the lead the the lead not the lead singer but the lead guitarist of is this guy this historical guy is they have a uh their first their first a vocalist is a guy who basically is suicidal and he kills himself. And then the guy that survives the, the main character decides that it's so metal that he has to go and buy a, a disposable camera to take a picture of it for his album cover. Which totally, like, totally yeah. happened. Which is a real cover for Dawn of the Black Hearts like, is Perolin's suicide. And like that, God, that's a wild one. Like they, they thought that it was possible that he might be one of a really small population of people that had like Cotard's delusion, essentially like believing that you are dead already. And so having this weird dis- or disconnection from your body and your ability to perceive yourself as a living being. So you start to do things that are destructive on purpose, essentially because you believe it doesn't matter and you just haven't really fully crossed over, but your body is dead. Oh wow! So it's it was really strange that like there was fair reason to believe this young man might have had that, but like God, that movie was wild. I think the I think the, it's the kind of a historical fiction movie where you're more fascinated by the pieces of it that did happen in real life, yeah. versus sort of the overly dramatic stuff they have to do to make a movie work. You know, well, you need the the structure for a story, and that's yeah. always the downside of any kind of a biopic mm-hmm. period, and it. 
biopics have this thing that I really hate, and it's why it annoys me every time it happens. Bohemian and, Rhapsody. That uh, movie's not good. Um, I did not get around to it. It, it hides behind amazing music. Um, it's also fucking weird that one uh, Rami Malek won the Oscar, but the clip they used is him lip syncing to Freddie Mercury. So there's literally none of his own vocal track in the clip they used. <laughs> I'm glad they did because no one should attempt to sing like Freddie Mercury. It's like, it's like Evil Knievel jumping the Grand Canyon, or it's just like, okay. I mean, it's possible you could do it, but very likely <laughs> Did not I'm recommend gonna, it. Yeah, the the greatest odds are on this person crashing and burning. Yeah, so it's best just not attempt it. And um, it makes me really wonder how the Sasha Baron Cohen freddie mercury would have been because i almost think that that, that there would be a, a an innate silliness as part of that that would have been more interesting i forget who who said this i really don't want to take credit for this point about bohemian rhapsody but that it's a it's a movie about you know particularly freddie mercury but queen in general that is produced by the surviving members of queen mm-hmm. that has as its major plot point and climax Freddie Mercury attempting a solo career, failing and coming crawling back to the surviving members of Queen. And that wasn't an important part of the story. Also, yes. Roger Taylor had a solo album before Freddie Mercury. So it's kind of like, fuck you guys. <laughs> and, you know, it, it didn't break up the band. Fuck you. It's, there's a lot of that where it's just like, oh, come on, guys. It's like you can't handle that the dead guy is the most popular one. <laughs> Hagiography hey, hey, is that the with that term we call it? It's just spinning out someone's bio in for, for a, in a historical fiction for the purposes of a, an agenda, right? I I don't called? know. I mean, they don't have a beef with him. It's not like this is the Star Trek cast and Freddie Mercury was William Shatner. They, they love <laughs> Freddie, but I I don't know. It's it's a really there's a lot of stuff in it. It doesn't feel like there's enough of a plot there because I've had people say this about the Queen behind the music that it was. It's like I love the band, but it's the worst behind the music because there's no drama. They get along, and it's like you want somebody to be a complete asshole fuck up to be the spine of the thing and they try to turn Freddie into that but it wasn't really what he was like and there's a lot of that bullshit but um that aside it it does have some of the things that I dislike which is I always call them party timestamps which is that we're oh. doing a time jump and we have to have somebody walk through the room and it's like, oh, happy new year, 1977. <laughs> or somebody walking through like a pool party and it's like, whoa, there's something on the thing to tell you that we've jumped to the 1980s now. And I, <laughs> it's so done in everything that it just kind of pisses me off. I think I do it like three times. I in. only think of BoJack Horseman now. Because of that, I don't know if you've watched that. But I haven't. God, they have this. They have this one episode where every decade of his life, they use the radio to communicate what time period you're looking at. And I don't remember the whole song, but one of them for the '90s is like '90s grunge song, something cruising <laughs> down the highway, some Nirvana thing, feeling very grungy, something like that. And it's like every. Every time they do a scene that's supposed to have taken place in the past, like they just adjust the sound of the radio and then sing what year it is or what decade it might be. And it's just like suddenly frozen yogurt, da, 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 80s, you know. So, yeah, it's yeah. just, oh, biopics. Yeah, it's that, that's that's the biopic in, in one thing. That's I love that they just made fun of that. Have, have you, either of you ever seen the Straight Outta Compton, the NWA 
dramatization. No, actually. I was uh, the thing about it is this is a thing of like survive, surviving members telling a story and I was and immediately when I saw it was coming out I'm like I'm interested in watching it, but what I would actually want to watch is a documentary about these people's lives before I would want to see the fictionalized parts. Okay. Yeah. Because because that's the thing that you don't actually know is, yeah, so not all the uh, EZE is dead. Not all the members of NWA are alive. So it means it's a story being told from largely the perspectives of the people that are still alive about the people that aren't. And, of course, it has some Hollywood cachet to these people are famous. You know, these people's songs were huge. But there's also the part that I kind of want it to be separate enough from the people who it's about that it doesn't kind of become, like, a most flattering version of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean... Freddie is probably the one who gets the most character development in Bohemian Rhapsody, so to speak. I mean, he's a real person. And he's the one who's dead. He's the one who can't chip in and say, no, no, I want to make this. And then there'd be no drama whatsoever, you know. And mm-hmm. But again, there probably wasn't a lot of drama in real life whatsoever. Freddie partied really hard for a few years, but it wasn't like it ruined everything because that's every VH1 special ever. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to say this. I will give this credit for the movie. It is the one and only time in my memory that I've seen a movie where a character is a Zoroastrian. Never seen it in a movie ever before this point. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of glad they didn't erase Freddy's, you know, cultural identity, though it's barely mentioned. It's yeah. barely part of it. It's really just a, uh, it's like the first line of a Wikipedia article. I mean, people were speaking, excuse me, people were speaking positively about the fact that it portrayed an Indian mother or a Southeast, uh, Southeast, Southwest Asian mother essentially being proud of her son which when you think about it you're like people are praising it because it literally never happens and then you think how strange that is or it's like never depicted yeah Yeah. you never you never make a movie where that's a thing really why but they do pretend that they single-handedly saved live aid (laughs) i mean that is a plot point of that's a climax of the movie paul Paul mccartney couldn't do it on his own no they act as if you know it it act as if everyone in africa was going to die (laughs) that day Mm -hmm. until they took the stage and they act as if it's as great as that. They did it for the money. I mean, I love I love these guys to death, but they did it for the money. Well, capitalist charity is always interesting and dubious at best. Where it's Rockstar just charity, kinda, I, especially. Yeah, I flew here in my private jet. My name is Bono, and I'm going to tell you how not to Bo- use too much gas. Uh, his name is his name is Bono. <laughs> Bono. Never let it let him convince you that his name isn't Bono. Well, Bono. that's Bono. Bono end, or Ono. <laughs> rich people like perfor- performative charity over paying taxes because they can't brag about paying taxes. Exactly. They don't get credit for stuff. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's that's how you get that that bullshit like that really depressing Christmas song that they play every year that nobody listens to the lyrics of. You know, there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. Partially because using my private jet is contributing to <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the destruction of the no, environment. No, they're never going to look that that inwardly. They'll never no, look no, that inwardly. No. Heavens no. Oh God, it's yeah. <laughs> so it's I, I I lose the sort of words that kind well, of. But well, this is the weird thing: the Elton John biopic is coming out. Very soon. At least he has magical powers, apparently, yeah. in that. <laughs> he does, he what does. do you mean, apparently? <laughs> yeah. But I, I was I was like, it's another uh, British superstar, another gay British superstar, another story about going, cr- getting wild, going crazy, you know, losing, almost losing your life to drugs. And like, it'll have the same okay. impact Bohemian Rhapsody does, which is it hides behind really great music mm-hmm. to say, oh, that was a great movie, but really, really, what I felt something about was the music that I already liked going into it. Yeah. And it's the same thing. 
thing. Like I came out of Bohemian Rhapsody and I really want to listen to Queen. That's because I just listened to a bunch of Queen. But it'll boost record sales and things and like that this for is, a little bit. People. This is the same reason why I don't buy nor would I go to a show of people doing Bo- David Bowie tributes. And I'm just like, you know what? I love David Bowie through and through. There's no one else that I'd love better. I don't want to hear other people sing his music. I, just I will, don't. however, go to a laser light show. They're they're yeah. having one of those again at I Pacific know. Science. I know. Uh, those are totally worth your money. So if you want to, dude, see I went to the, Bowie, I went to the Rush it. laser show. That nice. would blow your fucking mind right there. My partner I, took me to Gorillas for Valentine's oh, Day, and I was nice. thrilled. I was thrilled. I will say this about uh, Elton John really quick. He was the only part of Kingsman Two that I liked. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a good movie. And the guy from Kingsman is playing Elton John. Yeah, I, I do yeah. like Julianne Moore playing a Bond villain. That's cool. But the rest of that movie was like, hey, how do we shit over all the goodwill we got from the first movie? Yeah, no, no it's like it's, it does the thing that I really hate, which is that where a writer doesn't know what to do with a character, so they just kill them. I call it the Dorn problem on Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's just like it's like all they knew how to do with those people is have them plot on a patio. I, I you're you're talking about this just before we started recording, uh, Greg. But uh, that um, you're talking about watching The Fugitive, and one of the things I find utterly fascinating is it was a show from the 1960s that actually had a final episode with a conclusion, and how rare that was. That most of the time you just make new shows until people don't want to make them anymore, and then you have a bunch of things for syndication that you could show in any order. And the interesting thing about The Fugitive is that it almost didn't happen. There's this wonderful website, I think it's run by the Television Academy or whoever runs the Emmys, where they just do interviews with people about their careers. And whenever I'm at a loss for something to watch, I will log on to this website and watch these hour-long interviews with people like, some of them are no longer with us, guys like Robert Culp and so on, but uh, I was watching one with Diana Muldaur. Robert Culp is dead? He is. Hmm. No. And uh, I was watching one of Diana Maldar, who still is looking pretty good at age 80 or whatever. Wow. Um, but Leonard Goldberg, the producer, was talking about The Fugitive. And they were going to cancel The Fugitive. It just wasn't pulling in the numbers it used to. And he went to his bosses and said, we, we can't just, we have to resolve this. We've been leading these people on for four years. You know, we got to give them an end. And he cut some kind of a deal where the advertisers would kick in some money or whatever. They'd budget for like two more episodes because they weren't going to give him the money. The studio wasn't going to pony up. But Goldberg figured out how to finance it. And uh, so they made the two-part conclusion, the judgment. And, um, And he had the last laugh because to this day, this is 2019. The episode aired in, I think, 67 or 68. To this day, the conclusion of The Fugitive is still the third highest rated piece of broadcast television ever. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I think the only things that beat it are uh, the moon landing and I forget. MASH, probably. MASH, yeah. Yeah. The conclusion to MASH, and I think that... I think I looked at the list of, of ratings for TV shows like that, and like 70% of it are Super Bowls, and mm-hmm. I think that's the only thing that can possibly challenge it at this point. We live in such a um, a fractured media environment where there isn't a mash or a fugitive moment anymore on television 
I remember watching um, The Walking Dead, and that's one of the biggest shows on television. And you talk to, like, my coworkers at the used bookstore I used to work at, and maybe 20% of them watched that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's much more fractured. We don't have these sort of come-together TV shows that sort of are part of everyone's pop culture experience. But the idea that, you know, a, a finale to a TV show could be an event yeah was was something i don't think they'd ever thought of that we make a thing until we don't want to make it anymore we can't make money on it anymore it doesn't have viewers anymore and we just kind of stop i mean the last image of the enterprise you know flying around a planet going back into space for another adventure is the last episode of the original star trek there was never a sense of we know this is our last year so we want to have a finale and Every Star Trek show since then has had that moment. Like, we know this is the last episode. Even if it's kind of a rush job, like with Enterprise, I think they kind of wanted to go a few more years and naturally get to that point, and they have a bit of a time jump. But there really is a sense of, okay, we have to put a cap on the adventures of these characters that you've been with for a few years so that you can say goodbye to them. I mean, MASH is like the the all-time champion for that because... Um, I mean, it's a show about a, a three-year war that lasted 11 years. Mm-hmm. And I think somebody said there's more Christmas episodes of MASH than there were of uh, of the entire Korean <laughs> conflict. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, after 11 years you've been around these characters, even with cast changes, um, to just stop is like, you know, it gives the actors a chance to say goodbye. It gives some closure to characters in ways that, especially with episodic television, they didn't get a lot. But the idea that Richard Kimball would just be hunting for this one-armed man forever just seems like a horrible fate. I mean, that was kind of like the last episode of Quantum Leap had that moment where I was like, oh, yeah, he never gets home. And you're like, well, that's just fucking mean. <laughs> After all of that, he doesn't even get to go home. Um, but... It, that would be kind of a fate like that if you just ended it. I mean, people wouldn't expect it in retrospect now, but the fact that they did it was such a treat, and the fact that it was so long before it became a norm is so weird. It was weird, especially since it was such a monster ratings fucking hit. You'd mm-hmm. think more people would be on board with the idea. I don't think you saw it again until MASH. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, Star Trek, kind of made it a thing because it was after the next generation it was kind of accepted that well you got your seven years and then you got to do movies or dine out at conventions or whatever but seven is kind of our stopping place Um, which is weird because now that you have shows um, the the model for episodic television has changed to the point where now serialization is the norm Yeah. yeah And um, and sometimes shows kind of screw themselves that way. Um, my favorite example of this is the X-Files, hmm. where they had to keep going back to the well of, no, everything you know is wrong, <laughs> which is my least favorite device ever. I think the I think the problem with X-Files is the is it went too long. I mean, I think they I think they had some of that purple period of the show. And then obviously they got to a point when. 
uh, Mulder was just like was just like okay, well, I don't want to be here anymore. What's what's his face? Yeah, that there's an actor yeah. that has a career that can go somewhere, and they don't want. They said, well, I've been doing this for seven years. How long is an actor's career? How long can I still have leading roles? I want to go into movies. I want to take a fucking break. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I want to not live in British Columbia all I want, the time. I want to well, play a different was, character. You know, that was one of the troubles is I think David Duchovny kept upping the ante, hoping to get fired or get the show canceled. And because it was such a hit, and clearly it's the only song that Chris Carter knows. Everything mm-hmm. else he has tried has nosedive. I believe that's called Roddenberry Syndrome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they would just give him whatever he wanted. Yeah. It, it would get to be... a Please, well, you know, I want my trailer to be gold-plated, and I want naked women serving me ice cream, right. or, you know, whatever. And they would just give him everything he demanded till he finally just said, I'm leaving. Yeah. And um, and even then, he agreed to come back for special episodes. Yeah, they usually, that's and, and the, the last the, episode. Like the last two new seasons, I guess, which, it's a strange, I only saw the first comeback episode, uh, and it's a totally different experience uh, not just because I'm I'm older now than it was when the show started, but it's a totally different world to have X Files in, and it doesn't it doesn't work as well. Yeah, we, we don't live in the post fall of Berlin Wall sort of Bill Clinton pre internet yeah pre internet age anymore, and so X Files it, it it I don't know if it dog whistles. It, it, I kind of feel like it has to dog whistle a little bit. To be a show about conspiracy theories. Well, it, it's hard because it has the same problem that James Bond have after um, License to Kill, which is that you have this space of time where the world completely changes. And you have to find a way to change this this property to make it fit this new world, but also having to explain how it fits into this new world and acknowledge that the changes. I mean, when you go from James Bond always having the specter, no pun intended, of a possible nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union being caused by some supervillain, that's gone now. We have to find a way, well, why do we need James Bond? And having to sort of reevaluate that. But with with this, it's like the Internet exists now. Uh, There's a million Mulders. He's not, and most of them don't have a pension. From Ch- the FBI. Chances are Mulder would never have joined the FBI in the first place. He'd be hanging out with you know his fellow nuts online, and they'd have meetings and conventions, and they'd have their own magazine. He'd be a favorite on Infowars. Yeah, <laughs> and he, uh, he could build his whole career, and he'd probably be a much healthier, less damaged person because he wouldn't be on the defensive all the time. Yeah, yeah, and it's. He, and that's the thing, too, with these TV shows is that they continue past the point where the main star leaves. That's always this weird, delicate moment. And sometimes you can pull it off with Cheers. That was the moment where Shelley Long left. But you still had Ted Danson, and Ted Danson is sort of the dual heart of the show, and you can still keep going. But the dangerous thing with, with Mulder is Mulder was so much of the the drive of the show that it was about the push and pull between – Mulder and Scully. And when the guy, the true believer, is gone, um, you have to either replace him with a clone or you have to find a new way to figure out how this show is going to operate. Because when the skeptic is the one that's still there, it could just turn into a regular procedural that occasionally has a monster. But in fairness, the solution they arrived at, I thought, was pretty good, which was to make Scully the believer yeah. because we'd been with her for, what, eight, nine seasons where she'd seen all this crazy shit. The The alternative would to make her 
such a denialist that she would just look stupid. Yeah, I mean, she's and done we, autopsies and, on monsters. And we, and we all knew that Scully, of the two, was the smart one. Yeah. Right. So clearly, <laughs> if you're the smart one, you would figure out that there's something to it. So you assign her a skeptic that, you know, has to prowl around and report on her and stuff. And you can kind of keep the vibe, but it's still a different show. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to keep that stuff going, but I know, like, Scrubs is a really good example of a show that lost, like, 80% of the cast all at once. Mm-hmm. And you just, or The Office is another one where you lose Steve Carell. And then there always is this sense that the show is kind of limping along afterwards. And they, I don't know, I think with The Office, they did a good enough job losing Steve Carell. Steve Carell was so much of the impetus for everything bizarre that happened in this office to sort of keep it going. Um, but Scrubs, Scrubs became a completely different show. And how do you keep these shows going? The Walking Dead is going through this transition period right now. Um, Andrew Lincoln, who'd been playing Rick Grimes on that show from the very beginning, left at the beginning of this season. They just did a big time jump. Um, then Lauren Cohen, who plays Maggie on their leaves, and now the actress who plays Michonne is leaving because after Black Panther, she really doesn't need the show anymore. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's going to go on to bigger, bigger things where she gets to be more of a lead character. And the vibe I'm kind of getting is are people saying like, yeah, I think we're about done here and see how long we can sort of keep this going. Cause it feels kind of like we're transitioning into a moment that the walking dead is probably in that last couple seasons of X-Files mode where enough people leave that um, other people start leaving. We're like, well, I'm not as big as Andrew Lincoln. I'm not. I'm not going to be the new lead, no matter how they reconfigure this show. So maybe I should move on too. And how many of those parts can disappear before they just sort of end the show unceremoniously? Well, this is a thing that you have to contend with when you're a TV producer. Um, and to go back to the X Files, because the, there's a solution they could have taken that would have worked. I think it would have kept the fandom and everything, which is when Mulder and Scully both want out, make it the X-Files are the star of the show. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can tell, and it also solves your modernization problem by telling tales of the X-Files in the 60s. Sure. Or right. the 70s or whatever. You make it a period piece because this is a thing that I have run into as a writer is if you incorporate cell phone and internet technology into your crime thriller, you end up making a whip for your own back. You know, you right. you, you close off a lot of stuff. A lot of genre fiction depends on people not knowing things right. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or not being able to call and find out things. I think that's why we have a lot of 80s nostalgia things coming out now. I mean, one, because you can obviously plug into the writer's own childhoods, but I think also not having cell phones and computers, again, frees you up to have drama where people could be in an almost constant communication. Well, just the handiest example is Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne was created at a time when none of this technology existed. And Robert Ludlum's fucking template for every novel he ever wrote. Ludlum was one of these guys that wrote the same book over and over and over again. It's always a man alone on the run, trapped in a vast conspiracy with no one except the one woman who believes in him. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, and Bourne is like the ultimate expression of that. 
But even Ludlam could only make that happen for three books. I don't know how this new guy, Eric Von Huses, has right. gotten 11 more novels out of it. I'll say that uh, that I don't know Ludlam's books, but certainly when they when Greengrass and company started making the movies, they started the trope that I think we talked about on one of our podcasts, La Vista Baby, where the antagonists are a guys with a room full of connected computers. And the way that you... The way that you sort of advance the plot and the way that they were keeping on his tails is like, oh, we've got an arm, we got an army of like, oh, he's over here and they're seeing him on a screen. Oh, we can see from this camera. And that, to me, that just, that is the laziest possible way for you to have an antagonist chasing after someone is, oh, is he going to come up on this camera? Oh, is he said the code word on a cell phone? Like there's, there are, the only stakes are, will they lose him or they don't, you know, or mm-hmm. maybe this, maybe the, well, their operative falls into the same place, but like there never is a time when the power gets shut, shut down and they can't do, what do they do after that? Why don't they have a, a Bourne movie where they, you know, Bourne they shut the room down, yeah, shut the room down. That'd be do, more interesting than the room. Do those rooms exist in real life anywhere? Is there a screen that big with a bunch of other smaller <laughs> screens around that people are working on? I mean, other than NASA mission control, I, cause all of those rooms are clearly control. trying to to feel, uh, NASA mission control, but yeah. I mean, all of them kind of look well, like they want to be the Enterprise Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm certain of that. Uh, it's probably where the writers are getting the idea, because it's. I'm pretty sure that in real life, the guy who's the computer drudge at the lower levels of the CIA is not going to work every day and pulling his eight-hour shift and going to lunch, then coming back from lunch and saying, so we found our internationally feared fugitive. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> it's like, oh, doing, he blew up a bus. It's oh, like a Christ. data entry job. Right. <laughs> and, and most the, of those guys in that room are not going to get to see that giant screen where all the plot and important information is happening. Because one of them is a mole. There's like, he's going over. <laughs> he's talking to him on the giant 30-foot screen. <laughs> It's like, I know exactly where Jason Bourne is. (laughs) (laughs) And there's one of those, there's one of those guys in every room um, who's just like, oh, I'm secret. (laughs) And I'm typing somebody onto another thing on my own laptop and closing and then walking out of the room. Apart from everything else, that's a really shitty workspace. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, do you want to work on your computer job with one guy on either side of you? You know, especially if maybe... A lot of computer nerds are infamously non-hygienic. Yeah. And um, space that shit out. <laughs> I, I think the real answer I is mean, that those, life, those guys in real life are the contractors, are the contractors, yeah. are the people that you pay the Booz Allen Hamilton people, you know, like $2,000 an hour for this for the Snowden. You know, you pay uh-huh. them for the Snowden is what you pay it's for. It's like your job yeah. is just Wonder watching Kim. cell phones. You're like, I don't know. This, my <laughs> boss is trying to kill Matt Damon. I don't understand what's going on. When, I don't have enough of the big picture. When you said uh, that, all, all that I could think of when you were talking about that is the there was an episode on last season's Better Call Saul where uh, Better the, uh, Saul is trying to set up. He's trying to – one of his associates has been – arrested for assaulting a police officer and him and his lawyer friend have have completely contrived an imaginary community of people in this uh, this his hometown in the south that are starting a letter writing campaign to try to get this guy out of jail and he basically has a wall full of cell phones 
uh, that with are different names with different put on names them. and numbers, and whichever one picks up, he has to do a different voice. Like one of them is a slow talking Southern pastor, or someone is a receptionist at the church, or something like that. Uh-huh. I just think that's that's really what I think is there's got to be some really talented voice actor. Maybe Frank Welker. Yeah. He moonlights at the CIA, you know, and so he's got like fifty cell phones, and he's got a he's got to do Donald Duck, you know, if someone and you're, from you're Pakistan calling, calls. And you're like that guy sounded like Megatron. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But yeah, it, it's so bizarre stuff like that. I think my favorite subversion of the person in a chair, ticka, 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 was probably Spider-Man: Homecoming. Oh yeah, where yeah. Um, uh, Peter Parker is on this uh, wireless thing to his friend, uh, who's in the school computer lab, sending him information, and it's not even high-tech information. It's like. Peter just does not know how to drive a car. And he's like, uh, I need to know where the headlights are. And he goes, one moment. <laughs> and he's like, it's, it's a knob on the left side of the thing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and he's just he's just doing that and GPS on like MapQuest for him. And that's the entirety of it. It's like the it's it's the sort of thing I could do. But I just it's treated like and his friend is just like, oh, I get to be the guy in the chair. And he's so right. excited to be a part of it. Um, but yeah, that's that's that kind of subversion. But we're so used to this entire like unit of people that is always in this main character's ear where it does get away from their ability to not know things because they have access to all human knowledge ever and every file ever being able to be broadcast right into their earpiece. Mm -hmm. And it's harder for them to be surprised because you can know exactly what everyone looks like as you can... And then their face shows up on the 30-foot screen. You're like, oh, my God, they're the mole. <laughs> and only after they've left the room, the door goes, Tunk. they're like, oh, we're in lockdown. The eagle is moving. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, it's we're so used to that sort of stuff. Where ever, There's, like, even an episode of, I think it was... Um, God, it's, also, it's not I think CSI. My- What's the other one that has Mark Harmon on it? NCIS. NCIS, where two people are, the most, are trying to the hack The most some... successful television show of all time, apparently, or some shit like that. Oh, but they're both... Sure. How many billions hack- of dollars have There's two people right? hacking on the same keyboard in one scene. Oh, that's stupid. And it's, it's so wonderfully stupid. Um, but yeah, it's stuff like that. There was a lot of stuff in that room with people spitting exposition really fast. Well... Um, but yeah, I think also one of the reasons why it's just not that exciting of a thing to see on screen, especially in an action movie that is supposed to be exciting, that's supposed to show you things that you as your own worker drone don't get to see in your real life is people sitting in chairs on computers is what a lot of people do for a living. So it's not that interesting. And none of those it's, characters it's in those shows that... are the POV character. It's not like you're being like, oh, I'm the secret hero of this. No, you're just a dude typing on the computer. And that's not exciting. Well, can we talk about a trope that comes with that? Hmm. Because, first of all, I'm totally done with computer guys in action movies anyway. I'm so sick of the exposition nerd. Right. But there is a thing that comes along with that that offends me personally. And uh, a writer named Adam Castro, who is a terrific science fiction writer, he's the guy that first pointed this out. And I thought about it and I went, Yeah, that is really kind of offensive. And it goes like this. Your team of action heroes, because it's always a team. This is usually on television. Your team of action heroes, the hero and his wingman or whoever, they need to consult an expert. (laughs) So they go to the expert 
And the expert, they ask him the question, you know, we need the profile of Hannibal Lecter. We need this, right. this to understand how the magic railgun works. Or we need, we need actual knowledge. And so the expert clears his throat and starts to explain the way he would explain to anybody that asked him a question. And the hero, after about two sentences, butts in and says, in English, English Doc. Yes, yes, oh. yes. It's like, and, and Castro said this great, you know, what I want to see is the wingman <laughs> turn to the hero and say, why are you being a dick to this guy? We need him. Yeah. He knows things that we don't know. Why don't you just shut up and let him talk? Yeah. <laughs> we never see that scene because we always have to establish that people of knowledge are also socially inept and nerdy yeah well there's the the there is the retroactive effect on this which is i I don't know if i've told this have i told this story on the podcast before um me and a fellow panelist patrick johnson were uh on the beach in oregon we were just having a good time we were talking about stuff i think we're talking about ai or something i have told this story haven't yeah yeah yeah, go ahead greg hasn't heard it before i have not Uh, and there was a uh there was a late middle-aged woman who was walking by down at the beach and she because you're moving through the sand, she was mm. moving. She got about 45 seconds of our conversation, clearly about things that she didn't understand. And she just turned around and said, Big Bang Theory. And I was like, oh, my God. This is the, <laughs> the, the representation of people who talk about things with a, a bigger vocabulary has just been reduced down to, it's Big Bang Theory. It's so infuriating. It's well, like, it's, I, I, there's a whole show to be done about the demonization of intelligence in pop culture over the years. Yeah. You know, because I grew up in the era of the race to the moon and Heinlein and the scientist hero. You had you had Johnny Quest and his dad, Benton Quest, who was clearly very macho doing great scientific things. Mm-hmm. There was on the wave of bionic shows. There was uh, uh, Star Trek, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Like, people on the um, bridge can all do each other's jobs, but some of them are better and can do them faster than others. Like, you know, Kirk and, could do stuff in the inner engine if he wanted. He needed to, but he Scotty's so much better at it than he is. And even on Star Trek, you saw a little of it because you know you didn't really notice because Spock always got to be the coolest guy on the show usually, <laughs> to the point where it ruffled William Shatner and he complained about it. Right. But even established in this universe, everybody's mean to Mister Spock because <laughs> yeah. because he's smart. Because he's logical, everything he's under constant social pressure on the Enterprise to, to be dumb dumber, it, dumb it down, to be more human. Yeah, yeah Chekhov walks behind him, goes Big Bang Theory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was thinking more of Doctor McCoy's <laughs> constant, essentially what in today's world would be racial slurs. Yeah, it's like <laughs> right. You know, in in today's world, everybody on the Enterprise bridge would have to go to a, a human resources training, and McCoy would flunk out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, McCoy is a bully. That's just, that's for sure. But he's a green butted. But it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> Look at the packet, Doctor McCoy. <laughs> these are these are words we do not use. <laughs> Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Guy in the chair? What? You know how there's a guy with a headset telling the other guy where to go? Like, like if you're stuck in a burning building, I could tell you where to go because there'd be screens around me and I could, you know, swivel around them because I could be your guy in the chair. Ned, I don't need a guy in the chair. Looking good, Parker.